We've now arrived at chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. And we will be looking at the first four verses. I think that break is a very good segue because in particular for the next three chapters, we're going to see the look of a teacher upon his own disciples and giving them not only encouragement and their discussions, but also providing doctrine in which the church then, now, and in the future will see, truly, truly, the master did arrive in bodily form. It reads by verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And if, and you know the way where I am going. Let's go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you on this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, and with able faculties intact and fully adhered, we are here to give glory to your Son, Jesus Christ. Of this time, Lord, it is now of which we are taken to the teachings of which our Savior, your Son, is given to the world. He first taught to the disciples, and the disciples then taught it to the church. It is of which, Lord, we thank you and we love you for all that you've done and all mercies that you provided us for. For only by your spirit can we see obedience. And only by your love can we have mercy. It is of this, Lord, we thank thee. We love thee and we praise thee. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, to the audience, upon hearing these words, do not let your heart be troubled. One should be given rest and assurance that the Messiah states to his disciples then, and also to us as his elect, and those who's reading it should take comfort with it, whether in the past, present, and or future. In fact, if you recall the evidence of his peace and bringing, he did so when he was with the disciples in chapter 6, in which, after feeding the 5,000, he appears to them at night, upon walking on the rough waters as they were sailing. And as they rode and he saw the Messiah walk, they were frightened. But then by verse 20, he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Now, normally my introduction will be conveyed with particular details, as everyone seen, especially from a Presbyterian standpoint, of what we'll be expecting throughout this chapter. But if you note something here, we don't have a preview or some sort of detail that we are continuing or we're on the next day. In fact, what's even more telling is that the conversations between the master and the disciples continue until chapter 17, of which he takes to the high priestly player in which he communicates with his father. 
So then I want to book in this particular portion as we and as me and Pastor Jason will be approaching this dialogue and or uh, work that the Messiah has with the disciples. If you want to, you can even peer now to John 16. And if you bring your gaze to verse 25, we'll be reading up to 36 because I want to bring this portion to your attention now as we're going to start from verse 14 when we return back here in chapter 16 by verse 25 it reads these things i have spoken to you in figurative language an hour is coming when i will no longer speak to you in figurative language but will tell you plainly of the father in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you loved me, and I believe that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again, and going to the Father. By verse 29, it states, his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. The Messiah answers here in verse 31, Do you believe now? Behold, the hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. These last verses of chapter 16 and the first, first four verses of chapter 14 is bookending this discussion that I'm trying to bring to your attention. And it's amazing because, again, though it is spoken of, of his trial and tribulation in between chapter 18 through 20, to up to the resurrection in chapter 20, he does not speak with them again until chapter 21. Therefore, the way I want to approach this, I want to make this palpable. And especially given what the scripture has stated here, there's a lot of figure of speech. And... To do so, in this idea of mine, I want to take the contrast as a light to John's style. I won't be doing so much light versus darkness, but I will juxtapose the audience in comparison. The message that was taught to the apostles, but then the message that is taught to the elect. So, when we look at now, in the latter clause of verse 1, our master tells the apostles to believe in God, believe also in me. Now, if you have the Geneva Bible or the KGV or NG, NKJV or New King James, your version will read, you believe in God, believe also in me. And then in, via the ESV in the New American Standard Version, of which I read, believe in God, believe also in me, some might consider there was a discrepancy between the two. I will tell you, no, there is not. The proposition displayed is the same because of what was told prior. It holds it all together. 
Now, he starts in chapter 14, and chapters are really for us in terms of memorization. So there can be some argument that he's continuing from his discussion with them during the supper, of which this is why I indicated that there was no time slot or time setting to split the discussion. But nonetheless, I won't dabble in such details. But when he begins, as we're coming here with, do not let your heart be troubled, well, why would this be a prompted statement for him to state? If we look back at chapter 13, we saw during the supper, especially at verses 21 to 22, he tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And what transpired? The disciples looked at each other and uncertain who he spoke of. By verse 26, the master tells John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Then by verse 28, now no one's at the table knew why he had said what you are going to do, do quickly to him. Peter, who motioned John to ask him who was going to portray him, he posed this question after the like. Lord, where are you going? Because to Peter, he finds it odd, quite odd, that after following him for three plus years, we are told we, the apostles, are told like the Jews, where he is going, they cannot come. By verse 33, in John chapter 13, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I may say now to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So the master answers Peter in this, that as to the Jews, you are both fallen creatures. You both share a fallen estate. You are both children of Adam. And with such tainted heads and silly dispositions in your current estate, where I am going, you cannot come. But the difference here in what he told to the Jews as compared to what he told to the apostles, I believe Peter mistook. He was more concerned about following his master to wherever which he went, but not listening intently to what he was trying to convey. Because, yes, he did say to both the Jews and the apostles, where I'm going, you cannot come. But note the disclaimer, and this is why I split the first verse in chapter 14 the same way I'm going to split them here because of the way the message is provided to the audience. You see, to the Jews, when it was stated, where I'm going, you cannot come, he prefaced his statement by saying this. In John 8, 21, I'm going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. But to Peter and the apostles, of which, when he stated to them, where I'm going, you cannot come. He immediately follows it afterwards. And a difference that after he's prepared a place, you will follow afterwards. Now, you would think this should get, have given Peter and the apostles comfort. For note the words, you will follow afterwards. Afterwards. 
Yet Peter's impatience was on full display again. For by verse 37, he states, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter, for in his piety, like earlier when he mistook the Lord's work of washing the disciples' feet, here he missed it. He see, he did not realize that again, being a sinner, and he cannot perform the work of God set before the Son to perform, the Messiah even clarifies it to him. He says to Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So this should have alarmed Peter and everyone in the audience, or well, in attendance. For from the master's own words, word, lips, <laughs> words, but lips, he states to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. I can understand why they would be troubled. In fact, they're going to leave his side when faced of choosing their life upon his. So in chapter 14, it is proper for him to state. I believe he spoke to them in a calm demeanor. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in me also, because I'm going to go prepare a place for you to come so that afterwards you can follow me. Again, because the apostles will be away from him as the hour approach, the Messiah states to them in a sermon that he will not be alone. John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So to them, he's given them the comfort. The Father and I are one. The Father has given me a work, and I am to go and complete it. But I must go in order to do so. That was their message. What is ours? When we are told that we are fallen creatures, sometimes we take this to mean we are wounded. Some would even say we are confused. Some would even say we are ignorant. But just like Peter, we too have a sense of piety. Because you see, some of us will look at our own lives. And this is why I'm bringing the, the lesson back from the earlier lesson from about the commandments. Some of them, especially parents in the covenant, will look at their actions and say, well, I've brought my children to church every Sunday. I hold devotionals and I hold family worship at home. Some of the children would even say, well, mom, dad, I listened to the pastor. I heard his sermon. I wasn't fooling around. In fact, I even know my shorter catechism question and answer. Young adults, whether you're married or you're courting, you will say, I have attended church every Sunday. I'm well versed with the confessional standards. My attendance shows my devotion. So what am I going to tell you? I will say, good job. But in my encouragement, 
you and even I and the pastors, we still lack. Because we lose sight or we can lose sight of why we do those actions. You see, if our answer to all the things I just described and wherever you fit in this list of work, if your answer is that we will be the best Christians in the world, if your thought process is that we can prove that we are the most approved of God because our conviction lead us to the ascent of knowledge and agreement with the scriptures, you are no different than the Catholics. That's their argument. But if, in my opinion, in conviction, if your answer is alike to this, I come to church and I hold to the standards. I have family worship and devotionals because I want to obey the master. I want to come to the newfound obedience that is promised and renewed. And I want to know what I should do to show my love for him. Then you caught the message. Note the apostles' words to us because they understood what the master stated, especially as John showed after the resurrection. He showed that the scripture then became more to light of everything that the Messiah said and did. Going to Peter, Peter states in 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you must also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And to Paul, who came later on in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he states, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Then, if this is your understanding, if this is your belief, I will tell you, just as the Messiah stated to the apostles in his very exact words, you will follow also. Now, this let us segue flawlessly, actually, to verse number two. Because the peace that comes with the Messiah words, and depending on your version of the Bible, can be stated either in a question or in a declarative statement. If you have the ESV, for example, you will see here the statement posed by verse number two. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And in the New King James Version, the Geneva NSAB, it reads in the declarative, In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to repair a place for you. The disposition of the clauses, whether it be in the form of a question or in the declarative, does not change the proposition or the conveyment of what this is trying to say. Here, the apostles are told of what was to come. In the figurative language of the term house, which is stated in the Greek, oikia, which means a holding or building, Better yet, 
the hold of a society, or better yet, the hold of a family. This analogy is coming from this figurative language as we are to have the understanding the Father's house holds the family of God's elect. And it's not a literal home. I mean, again, remember, I read to you earlier, John 16, 25-36, but this illustration of which the house holds, the Master is trying to show we too will be attending to this household. Now, be it that it has many rooms, it's then proper to understand and think, well, to what capacity could this house hold? The Messiah states, as the good shepherd, he has to go and attain a flock which has not come in yet. You remember in John ten sixteen, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The understanding here is the denyment that the old Jews thought in which one would take their death. Now granted, with some commentaries, they look into this to be the speech of which heaven has now been opened. And that individuals will now take in part of this particular event upon their death. I mean, such was the confusion. What would happen to the saints upon their death prior to Christ's ascension? A good majority of them would assume that there was an intermediate estate of which they were to take. And if you want to consider the aspect of Abraham's bosom, that is actually stated once in all of scripture, particularly in the New Testament as the Messiah gave the parable between the rich man and Lazarus. So the expectation here, especially with the calm demeanor of peace that he's trying to give the apostles, he wants them to be reassured and that their anxieties and worries should be for naught. For it is understandable the one is afraid of the unknown. But then he explains upon which his departure is necessary to prepare the place for those who were to arrive. And it's interesting because one might be thinking, am I jumping around the hoops to see if this Scripture is really considerably talking about heaven. I would say, as compared to the law of the commentators, I will look at it as an aspect that, yes, heaven is discussed here. But if you stop at that moment, again, you miss the message. Because you see, many individuals will like to take to the aspect of, well, I, my father has many homes. And so upon the death, we will go on and be with our father. True. But who told you that it stopped at heaven? Who lied to you and told you that the body that you died in is going to be gone forever? You see, that is the assurance 
that came with do not let your heart be troubled. Because in three to four verses, he almost conveyed to them alike what was going to transpire. No, he further explained his need. Yes, his need to depart because of what he was going to do. By verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, the assurance is prompted with the Messiah speaking as the Christ. And what's amazing and what I did not see in many of the commentaries and studies I was noticing, the Messiah here is operating as prophet, priest, and king in his humanity. You see, the prophetic saying that his departure was going to signify a coming was the coming of his kingdom. And note what the catechism states and how he operates the office of a prophet. He reveals to us by his word and the spirit the will of God of salvation for us. Hebrews 2 verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard? And of this departure, only one can take of it in which his priestly duty is now taking onus. And if nobody understands what onus means, for those who are still trying to learn or love to learn, it means one's duty or responsibility. You can add that as a $10 word. But nonetheless, he's taking onus to his priestly duty. For the catechism even states, in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice he reconciles us back to God. And note, he continues to make intercession. <laughs> again, I read, I read verse check, verse two and three again here. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. <sighs> Peter, who cannot go where the master is and did not comprehend as to what he was tasked with until after the master's resurrection, Peter may have believed, yes, he was sullied in sin. And when pushed to the wall, he will deny the master. And all of them will be scattered for the fear of risking their lives. But in the master's priestly duty, he showed, I must take my life because I have been tasked to do it. John 12, 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
John 10, 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so I may take it again. So then lastly, in operating as a king, he reigned and he will reign over the dwelling as a master of a hotel or as a king protecting his possession. Exodus 19 verse 5 is what I've read to you earlier during the commandment lesson. Upon the obedience of keeping the commandment, you will come to find he will treasure you as a possession. And what does a king do? He protects and rules over his people. And they rejoice because they have found safety. For us, he was given a people to care over and defend and protect and to cover them under the cleft of the rock. The catechism states in him operating the duties of being a king, he subdues us to him and rules and defends us and he restrains and conquers all his enemies. John 10, 24 to 29 is a very good understanding here. Note here. The Jews didn't gather around him. They were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered him, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, that these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hears my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This, all being built up is to show why in the office of mediator the Christ holds a clear distinction. It consists of him taking on humanity and divinity and they're not intermingled. But the two are in harmony and that dwells in the body of Christ. Be it that he suffered in his soul, he performed the works of miracles. His body was prepared for this hour. So he tells his disciples that this way is the only way. And they know. And that there should be peace that comes from his death. Not tribulation. Not unwanted piety. Not unthoughtful thinking. It is not as destructive as you've seen others die before you. For they lie in their graves and they sleep. But his death is to signify hope. Hope to all. So that after the resurrection, it's understood the preparation of the Father's house. The receivement of the individuals who died in Christ. This is why by verse 4, he states, And you know the way to where I am going. All this 
And what we convey in the first four verses is to show the, com the cumulative understanding of the peace that comes with Christ. Whether you are a child, whether you are of old age, when the Spirit takes hold of you, you will understand. This is why I brought up the concept of accountability. Now, this is the message that was given from the apostles, from the master to the apostles. But as promised, what is the message now given unto the elect? Well, let's have an apostle teach us. For they were given it from the master, and from, from them we will hear the words. And with clarity, I even bring to you Paul. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, by verse 20 to 28, after everything has been stated, listen closely as he speaks these words. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits to those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then what transpires? Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For why? He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it is said all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Simply and put. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Case in point, the Father indwelled him with a task to do. He performed the task to its perfection. The apostles were privy to this immediately upon the intimate knowledge of a teaching that he's going to give to them. And a lot of people, it's like I said before, they think it stops at heaven. No, it is not. The message to us is that Christ has come, he's resurrected, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Upon your death, the soul will go back to the one who gave it. If you are here today and given especially the two quote-unquote individuals of whether it be the papacy and their ascent to knowledge or those of the reformed faith, you will know where you reside with him. But guess what? You are still with him. Whether it is in Sheol, for David said, you are still there, or whether it is glorifying him in heaven. You cannot escape him. This is the reason why 
I make the emphasis, and I only stopped at the first four verses because I noted how important it was to lay that foundation. There was a lot said in those first four verses. And what caught me by surprise is some of the commentaries, be it reformed or being not reformed, did not give this conveyment. So this is the first you're hearing it from. Some of them, to certain degrees, will come to a agreement, and I won't say any names, but it's really fascinating that they did not make this notion across. But it's stated right here, especially the fact that he begins the preface, do not let your heart be troubled. And he conveyed the plan as to why that was the case. In fact, I even told you by verse 28, because I stopped just to make that point, there is a conclusion and an understanding to why this whole plan needed to go. So God might be all in all. We are as sheep pretty naive because at times we're taken away by the cares of the world. Many of us will look to tomorrow or the day after and we will just hope to check or clear things off our checklist. This is okay. This is okay. Why? We are to be diligent over what God has given us to be stewards over. For example, parents, when you have been given children, you are to be good stewards over them, to rear them in the covenant, so that when they become, quote unquote, young adults, they understand how to live the Christian life. And to grandparents, Look at the providential care that God has given you. For note, you're able to live long to see your children prosper. And then your grandchildren prosper. And if God is even so gracious, your great-grandchildren. But yet, there are times when anxiousness, worry, and also self-doubt, even fear, has crept up or will creep up in your time in life and it will even overshadow the effort you thought you put into your Christian walk what does the master tell us in this understanding then he's telling us as he told the disciples do not let your heart be troubled you believed in God believe in me also was it not his very own words when he stated it in Luke 12, 6 through 8, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone, everyone who acknowledges me before man, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. Our Lord is merciful. He's loving. He showed care. But again, I tell you, he does not bless disobedience. So the question is to us, especially given what he's told to the apostles, how do we live our life in our own sense of accountability? This is something we should take to heart. 
And if you have all those practices down and you're well accountable, then when times of circumstances and trouble and fear comes, what do you do? This is a peaceful thought in regards to the Messiah's own words to tell us, do not be troubled at heart. For the apostles at that time, they were worried about losing their master. But for us, especially after the master has shown he is resurrected after death and is continually ruling, his handprint is in our own lives. How much so do we show the love for the master than by obeying him? Let us pray.